0: Matthew 21 is where we find ourselves. As you are turning, we will pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Goodness, your grace. For who you are, Lord. And we just pray, Father, that you would bless this time that we have together in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 So last week I ended on the note that um, we need to represent Christ to this world. Because this world has seen enough of religion. They've seen enough of the fake, phony hypocrites. And so we need to be just genuine, really authentic is the word. We don't have to pretend anything. We just need to speak the truth and speak the truth in love. And um, be humble enough to acknowledge that we're all a work in progress. That we, you know, nobody's arrived. Jesus is the one that's perfect. Jesus is the one that was uh, perfectly righteous on our behalf. And so now the weekends, we saw blind Bartimaeus cry out to Jesus in the last chapter. And they're telling him, hey, you know, why bother the teacher? There's really two blind guys, but Bartimaeus is the one that's named, and he's the one that's vocal. And Jesus stands still. I just love that verse. Jesus stood still as he's heading to Jerusalem, as he's heading to his last week in life on earth. And so he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? he says, I want to see, I want to be able to see. So Jesus heals him, and then he follows him. And so it's just a beautiful picture. That's where we left off. We pick up now with the last week in Jesus' life. Verse 1, Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. And so Jesus is now setting up his triumph. It's called the passion of the Christ this last week. And this is called the triumphal entry. A day that would be prophesied hundreds of years before the very day. Um... Interesting that you know, just it's all in order that, that God sets it up, and that hey, if they ask you, oh, what are you guys doing taking my donkey and his uh, little coat there, the baby? would like, Oh, the Lord has need of it. Oh, okay, straight up. All right, <laughs> go and take it. You know, and it's just God goes before all of this, so it's beautiful. Verse 4 All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying. Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the colt is the baby of the donkey, in case you don't know. Jesus is going to ride on the colt. He's going to ride on the donkey, on the the, the baby. And, I mean, Jerusalem's going to be just full of people. Millions are going to be there. And So just imagine a, a, a little animal like that, that has never been ridden, to not buck them off or be scared. And so... You know, maybe that's why they're saying, hey, bring mommy with them, you know, but he eventually he's going to ride the, the, the baby one, the colt. Um, but just every time, I, I trip on this. I didn't read this anywhere, but I, I just, this is my observation. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Every time God speaks to an animal, the animal perfectly obeys. There ain't a time that an animal rejects his maker. They just go with it, you know. Uh, fish, I need a fish in the sea. Yeah, go swallow Jonah. Yeah, it obeys. Yeah, spit him up on the sand. Obeys. You know, just every time you see an animal, the donkey, right, that's giving a Balaam a ride, and he's talking to him, and that's just a <laughs> tricky story right there. Yeah. But just all the time, you know, these animals just, they got some insight into who their creator is, and it's awesome. Verse um, 6, So the disciples went and did... As Jesus commanded them. In Zechariah 9.9, 9, it's the fulfillment of that prophecy where the, you know, it's prophesied that he would uh, be riding in on a colt. And that's a symbol or sign of a king coming in. So Jesus is, he fulfills all of the ministries, right? He's a prophet, he's a king, and he's a priest. Um, different order than the Levite order, right? Melchizedek is his order. Different tribe, not coming out of the tribe of Levi, coming out of the tribe of... Jesus from the tribe of Judah. Judah. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, it says right there, which was spoken by the prophet. Um, Here Jesus deliberately worked to fulfill prophecy, especially the prophets of Daniel's 70 weeks, which many feel Jesus fulfilled to the exact day on his triumphal entry. I am one of those who believes that. If you take... Nehemiah chapter one. You take Artaxerxes. You take the command to start building the wall. You use the 60-day calendar, 360-day uh, calendar, that they used, um, and you just do the math. It comes out to the day that he would be writing in Jerusalem. And so, even in the Gospel of Luke, he would—I um, think I'm going to give a reference to it—but he would say, "If you had only known this, your." Now your house is going to be left desolate because you didn't know the day of your visitation. You didn't realize. You didn't do your work. And I think that's important for us to not get caught up with end of the world uh, rhetoric. Right now, the world's going to end April 23rd, in case you didn't know. <laughs> Did anybody hear that? No? Get my oh my God, that's the biggest thing in news right now. Huh? It is said that the world is going to end April 23rd. Either, and this is how uh, Fox News put it: oh, wow. either um, the rapture is going to take place, or we are going to be hit by a secret planet or something like that. Fox News. Center? Yes, I have the clipping. I shared it last week in my Bible college class. Wow. So Jesus doesn't know, but Fox News. Wants right. So. I think it's important, again, for us to know and understand the times, the times in which we're living, and how to be able to live in these last days, but I think it's very destructive when people start naming dates, and saying that this, that, or whatever is going to happen. God's not going to let the, end, the world end, because He tells us how the world ends in Matthew 24 and 25. We're going to see it in the the Discourse, and so, you know, God's going to do what God's going to do, and I'm going to go ahead and take God at His word. Before I'm freaking out every time you turn a page or you turn a channel and somebody's saying this or that is whatever's going to happen. Okay, We'll just be faithful to the end regardless, right? Yeah. All right. Verse 7. They brought the donkey and the coat, laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Hence, Palm Sunday. So those would be palm branches that were laid down. And again, it's the triumphal entry of the king. And Jesus would hold everybody back from calling him king or or declaring that he was the Messiah until this day. This day, he's going to let it happen because this is his day. This is actually Psalm 118 is that messianic psalm of the triumphal entry. And in that very psalm it says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And that is specifically prophesied for this very day. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. I read that put their clothes, palm branches. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, "Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest!" What does Hosanna mean? Anybody know? Hosanna! It means save now. And so everybody is saying it, everybody is joining in, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. It was here, before he entered the city, that he looked over the city and wept, knowing the judgment that would come upon Jerusalem. That's found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. And so right here is when Jesus would walk on that path. He would oversee Jerusalem and he would cry. Why would Jesus cry for Jerusalem? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mm -hmm. And they had rejected their Messiah. So what was going to happen at that rejection? They're going to be lost. They'd be lost. Yeah, they'd be judged. So they'd have a partial hardening is what it's called in Romans... Probably 9, 10, or 11, one of those chapters. Um, They would be blinded, basically, from being able to see the truth. Would some Jews come to the Lord in that period of time? Yes, very few. But most of them are, what, agnostic today. Not even a whole lot of practicing, right? Because they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 12, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So very important, this will be the second cleansing of the temple. The first one is found in John's Gospel, chapter 2. And Jesus would do the same thing. He'd make a whip, and he'd drive out the money changers, or drive out the money changers, overturn, and the people who were buying and selling, not just one or the other, And so that is in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles is what it's called. The purpose of the court of the Gentiles was so that outsiders can come in and find God. And they had gotten it to the point where it was so, such a racket that they were keeping people from coming to God. And again, I see this today with religious people. I see this today in religious things, that we keep people from God instead of expressing, that God's good, I'm one poor person, pointing to where I can get some food to another poor person. I'm not one who has life all figured out. That's all of us and that's what we're supposed to be declaring. I remember there was a lady who worked at one of the schools I worked at and she was a Christian and she felt bad because her life was in shambles. her kids weren't following the Lord and she was just she was just going through it and thinking I'm a bad witness for my family. I'm a bad witness uh, you know for, for people who ask me questions I'm saying how are you a bad witness? You're living life and you're running to your God. And He's there for you. And He's providing you peace and wisdom in the midst of the chaos that you're going through. Point them to that. Let them see the reality of your life. A lot of people think that you know our lives need to be perfect and then we can be a witness for God. No, 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 no. Your life will be perfect when you're in heaven. In this world you're going to have tribulation. In this world you're going to have struggles. In this world you're going to have trials. In this world you're going to sin and mess up. Point them to God. This gracious God that is forgiving and loving and cares about you, cares about the things that you care about. Mark's record contains the more complete quotation of Jesus' reference to Isaiah. He says in uh, Isaiah 56, 17, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, Mark eleven seventeen. The point was that Isaiah prophesied and Jesus demanded that the temple be a place for all nations to pray. The activity of all those who bought and sold in the outer courts made it impossible for anyone seeking uh, any seeking Gentile to come and pray. So the very opposite of church and what God wanted church to be was what's happening. Hey, I want my house to be a house of prayer. Let people come in and pray to me. No, we want to make money. So people aren't going to be able to pray. Pray Because it's going to look like a big old swap meet. A big old rummage sale thing going on. Where people are making money hand over fist. I had one quote. I didn't write it down. But I had one quote where I think it was 25 to 1 is what they were making money. So if a dove was supposed to cost, call it 2 bucks. They'd make that 25. Was that 50 bucks? How sad is that? Like, you know, you're just robbing God's people blind. And... How are you supposed to get close to God? I can't I can't afford it, I guess. I can't afford to get close to God. I, I, I guess it's for a certain mob, a group of people, and I don't fit in that class or that category. No, that's not how it's supposed to be. I think it's interesting that we are the temple of God, and I hope and pray that we are people of prayer. That that's the first thing we run to, not the last thing. That it doesn't get so desperate that, oh my gosh, uh, Lord, i got to come to you, because no, you should be coming to me first. My house shall be a house of prayer. And if we are the house of God, the temple of the living God, then I pray that we are a praying people. And in any church, unfortunately, sad to say, the least visited ministry is always the prayer room. And that's the most dynamic, powerful ministry in all of the church. There is no greater ministry than the intercessory prayer ministry. No greater ministry. And yet, least attended no fanfare, you know, no fluff. Your name's not getting written to the ledger, you know. But that's where the power is. Nothing will happen in Calvary Chapel Living Water unless we get a group of individuals that are consistently seeking God. Because that way nobody gets credit with God. But he's like, ah, pour it out, but you gotta seek me. You gotta seek me. So, interesting dynamic. 14, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When did the blind and the lame come to him in the temple? When he drove out the money changers in the outer courts where the blind and the lame could come. What was he showing? He's modeling. Look at guys. This is what church is supposed to be. These people are blind and lame. They're not allowed to go into the inner sanctuary. But they're allowed to come into the outer court, the the court of the Gentiles. But they couldn't come in because you guys are doing business in church. Ah, Right there, the very next verse. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying, and Jesus said to them, Have you not read, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. A note on, and he healed them after driving out the money changers and the merchants from the temple courts. Jesus didn't establish the Society for Cleansing Temples. He got back to the business of the Messiah, significant part of which was showing the power of God in the context of compassion and mercy. Awesome. Uh, now, in the morning, so this is the next day, as he returned to the city, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again, immediately the fig tree withered away. So there's a lot of things happening there with this fig tree. Fig tree is a symbol of Israel. Um, Probably one of the biggest things that's happening is he's saying, you rejected me as Messiah. You're not producing fruits of repentance. Therefore, you're going to wither away. And that's exactly, definitely what happened. Um, It is worth, worth... noting that the two destructive miracles of Jesus, this and the uh, events that ended in the destruction of the herd of pigs in Matthew 8, 30 through 32, were not directed towards people. So I find that pretty interesting. He found nothing on it but leaves. This explains why Jesus did this destructive miracle. Essentially, the tree was a picture of false advertising, having leaves but no figs. This should not be the case with these particular fig trees, which customarily did not bear leaves apart from figs. And so it's false advertisement. Um, In this acted out parable, Jesus warned of coming judgment upon an unfruitful Israel. It showed God disapproval of people who are all leaves but no fruit. The story is clear and simple. and 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 it's point obvious. That what counts is not promise, but performance. France writes that. And so I think it's important for us to make sure that we check our lives for the fruit that that should be produced out of our lives. What is fruit that we want to see? What kind of fruit do we want to see out of our lives? Through the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. What is that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, awesome. and gentleness, and self-control. How do we get that fruit produced out of our lives? According to John 15. But definitely others is the the key, because Jesus said the two commandments, right? Love God love people. The way we love God is by loving people, right? We're tapped into the source. To be tapped into the source, that's the natural byproduct, is fruit produced out of our lives. So fruit gives glory to God, it doesn't give glory to us, right? We don't default to godliness. We default to ungodliness. No one righteous, no not one, none who seek after God, according to Romans 3, right? So we need to be tapped into the source, like a, like a light, you know, a light, you got a lamp over here, lamp has a plug, you plug the plug into the socket, it provides the power, right? And so it's the same thing, when we're a branch tapped into the tree, then the natural byproduct of that relationship is going to be, fruit's going to be produced out of the branch, out of the leaves that are, we are that, we're that branch, Okay? So we need to be tapped into the source. But we need to yield and surrender. We can resist. We we can hold that back. We can walk in the flesh. Walking in the flesh is not a a product of fruit. It's the opposite. It's carnal. It's base. And so we need to be tapped in, and then we need to surrender and yield and let God flow that through us. Uh, Verse 20. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say this to, uh, also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done, and whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. You know, prayer is an interesting dynamic. And I think you need to be careful... I think there's this, and I don't know where the line is where you command God to do what you want God to do as if God were a genie in a lamp and you rub this lamp and he's going to give you three wishes and you're telling God what to do. Um, I don't think that works. God knows what he's going to do. And you need to line up with what God's going to do. And I think communion and a closeness to God begins to reveal as God communicates to you the things that he wants to do. And so you're not God. You're not telling God the Creator what to do because this is what you want on any given day. You're so close to God that you're hearing from God. He's placing upon your hearts the very things you're praying for and He's giving them to you in the affirmative. Pastor Chuck Smith always said that every answered prayer is born in the heart of God. And as you are close to God and you're hearing from God, we had somebody say, pray for me that I would be healed from this cancer. And I said, yeah, the Lord didn't, the Lord didn't. The Lord never shared that with me, that he's going to heal you from cancer. I don't hold the market on God, but as a shepherd, I pray and I ask God to guide me and direct me and show me what he's going to do. And I didn't hear that from the Lord. The person tells me what well, another pastor told me that I was going to be healed. I go, oh, cool. I come alongside of that prayer, but I'm going to pray. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And I hope that that's the case. And so it's not me that I own the market or you, you own the market. It's God. And if God wants to heal somebody of cancer, if God wants to heal somebody of a terminal illness, to God be the glory. But we don't tell God to do what we want God to do. We petition. We we prayerfully request. And we, we leave the results up to God. Jesus did not want to go to the cross for various reasons. Father, if there's any other way Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And in obedience, he went to the cross. There was no other way. The Father's letting him know there is no other way. You are the only way. Otherwise, he would have told him the other way, right? But he told him. Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. And that, to me, is the greatest prayer of faith. A prayer of faith is not commanding and demanding from God God, do what I'm telling you to do. It's nevertheless not my will. I want to trust you at your will. I want to take you at your will. Lord, prepare me for your will. This is what I'd like. I'm I'm asking you as a son, as a daughter. I'm holding it up to you. But Lord, prepare me for your will. If If it's different than what I'm asking, prepare me for your will. That's faith. I don't think faith is telling God what he has to do in my life. And I see that. I see that a lot in Christianity. Verse 23, Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will... Also, ask you one thing, which, if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, Jesus isn't playing games with them. They're playing games with, with God. Because they already said that they were infuriated with him, right? And they're trying to trap him, trick him, trying to see what's going on. They, he's definitely messing with their system. And so they want to know by what authority. And Jesus comes back and he's like, you know what, if you weren't playing games, I would tell you. But since you're playing game, I'm going to go ahead and give you a question that you can't answer. At least you won't answer because I know your motive. I know your motive. Mm -hmm. I know why you're doing what you're doing. And so, um, but Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Had they said John, he definitely would have asked them. They why don't you follow what John was saying? Right? So that's a pretty awesome little, I don't know, I guess dilemma, if you will. They could not say of men, for they were cowards. They they would not say of heaven, for they were hypocrites, Morgan writes. That's pretty powerful. But what do you think, verse 29, I can't see, 8. A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it anyway. Then he came to the second and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of these two did the will of his father? They said to him the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believe him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe. Neat little just parable that he gives of these two sons. Two sons he asked independently, it's his vineyard. They know the character of their father. He makes a request. First one says, nah, I don't want to go. Feels bad after, ends up going. Second one's like, yeah, I'll go, but doesn't go. Answers him respectfully, I go, sir, but doesn't go. What would God rather have us do? Obey, whenever we get around to it. And so are we going to obey perfectly every time? No. No, we're not. But any moment that we come, kind of come to that place where we realize, ah, I haven't been obeying. I need to obey. It's a good time. Um, he answered and said, I will not, but afterward he regretted it and went. The first son refused to work for his father. He didn't want to bend to the father's will Yet later he regretted it and went. He spoke wrong, but did right. Then the other one, he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. The second son said the right thing, and he said it with respect, sir, but he did not do what he said he would do. There are many in church, uh, many a churchgoer that imitate the second son. They admit that the word of God is true. They intend to get serious about it, Someday. They talk about doing the Father's work. They keep up the external appearance of religion. But their heart is not right with God. And they think that words and promises are enough. I think of the the woman who gave the two mites. And God's watching. She doesn't think anybody's watching. And God, and Jesus Jesus said, said, This woman gave more than all these other rich guys. How could that be? She only gave two minds. They give out of their abundance. They have something left over. She gave everything she had. And God sees that stuff. He sees the heart. He sees what nobody else sees. He sees what we think about. He sees what bugs us. He sees what we worry about. He sees what overwhelms us. He sees all of that. And faith is trusting God. Faith is taking God at His word. And no matter what's going on, that's your relationship with the Lord. No matter what you're saying, no matter what it looks like from the outside, that is your relationship with the Lord. And how dare any of us let anything come in between us and our Maker. Anything or anyone. Nothing. We give that permission away. We let that thing come in between us and the Lord. We shouldn't do that. We're so easy to give up sometimes. To give up on the smallest trivial, uh, trivial, trivial list of things. Be careful. The enemy's subtle. He don't care what it is. He just wants to get you off that path. Verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers. And went into a far country. Now, when vintage times were near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, "They will respect my son." But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their seasons. The very people that are trying to trap Jesus and trick Jesus are answering truthfully. It's almost like Jesus threw them off their game. Like, oh my gosh, that's a crazy story, man. You're going to like, he's going to wipe them out. He's going to give it to somebody else because they weren't faithful with that vineyard. (laughs) Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So they finally started to get it on. David's talking about us. Get up! Oh, shoot. Can't. The multitude. We'll end here on this little verse. 43 and 44, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruits on it. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Every Christian must be broken. What's the choice? Broken or grinded to powder? Pulverized. Yeah, we don't want to be pulverized. That's an eternity separated from God. We don't want to be that. Broken. Broken. There's no other way. We all have to be broken. Broken down to be built up so that we can witness, so that we can do the things that God has called us to do, so that we can be lights in this dark world. No other way.